So I'm here with my friend Imam Islam Mossad in Austin, Texas, having a conversation for allcreation.org. And we're going to be talking about dominionism, but we're going to ease into this just a little bit. And I would love to hear from you, my friend. Um, tell us a little bit more. Tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're serving, how long you've been here. Just help us get to know you a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dan. I begin in the name of God, the most gracious and most merciful. Uh, praises for him and the peace and blessings be upon all of his prophets and messengers from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to Jesus and to their seal, uh, Muhammad. Uh, very happy uh, that you made the drive and, and are here uh, for this uh, interview. Uh, a little bit about uh, myself. Um, I, I grew up here in Austin. I was born in Arlington, Virginia. And then uh, my parents came to Austin, Texas when I was two years old. Uh, so um, I'm as close to native as maybe you can get, I mean, to, to being an Austinite. Um, you know, people sometimes they say that question, which people can interpret in different ways, but I will answer it, you know, like, where are you really from? <laughs> so, uh, but this is definitely home for me, uh, as we were discussing before coming on air. Uh, you know, home for me is, is, is where you feel most at ease, most yourself, uh, and you have a spiritual connection to uh, the nature and uh, the people also around you. And so um, this is home. But my parents did come from Egypt, uh, from Cairo, Egypt, back in the 70s, uh, which is maybe a topic for another day where the uh, enlightened leadership of, of former presidents to say, let's have an open immigration policy and mm. bring people with, uh, you know, uh, talents and abilities instead of shutting the door on them. So that was part of, you know, the JFK and LBJ kind of immigration, which brought my father uh, here uh, to study at the University of Texas. Uh, I serve as imam now uh, at the North Austin Muslim Community Center. Uh, so an imam is a person who uh, leads the five daily prayers, does the Friday sermon, which is the main congregational day, uh, but also does uh, counseling and um, marriage and hopefully less divorce. Hopefully we can do some reconciliation. <laughs> uh, so there are there is a level of counseling and interaction. But the other dimension to being an imam in the West uh, is uh, presenting Islam, uh, talking about Islam to people who sometimes either know very little or know 180 degree opposite to what is the actual truth about Islam. And so it's a, uh, an area of the work which I embrace. Um, you know, right after 9-11, there was huge demand for people to come and speak about Islam from people who were experts and maybe not so much experts. <laughs> and the Quran was the fastest selling uh, book <laughs> in all the bookstores. And so even though I decided to go into imam work in 2003, uh, there was definitely that seed that was planted in me that we needed uh, an American uh, imam uh, to kind of step up and um, uh, be an ambassador uh, in many ways uh, for the faith uh, and the tradition. I bought my Quran right after 9-11 as well. Yeah. That yeah. was my first introduction to it. In that respect, then, with being an imam in the West, you say you embrace that piece of the work. How much more, though, of your work comparatively with other imams not in the West does that consume your time? So Introducing Islam to people yeah, who don't I mean, know anything about it's, it. It's a highlight, and I want to bring it back. We did have, a few years ago here at NAMCC, the North Austin Muslim Community Center, we had an Islam 101 course where it was actually meeting uh, regularly for at least 12 weeks and we had an audience participation. I remember one year we had a, almost 100 students uh, that were not Muslim who wanted to learn about Islam. And so when you talk to other Muslims, they're kind of like, well, we know this and we know that, that already. And Whereas a person who doesn't know anything about Islam they're like, oh, you really believe in Jesus? Oh, we never knew that. Oh, so Allah is the, like the one God that Abraham was talking about? Oh, we so when you see the sparkle in the per person's eye when they discover something that they 
saw Islam and Muslims as the boogeyman, and then all of a sudden they're seeing, well, wait a minute, this is you know a Middle Eastern tradition, but it's also a universalized tradition for all people from all over. Connections the world. and yeah. epiphanies, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, well, then keeping keeping that going with educating me more about Islam, I was curious for our to get into our topic. What's a traditionally Islamic view of the environment and how do Muslims understand their relationship with the environment? And I'm talking specifically in terms of that, that theme of, of dominionism. Uh, how do Muslims understand their relationship with the environment in terms of having dominion over the earth? Yeah. So we, I would say we start from a very different place in terms of that word dominion, because usually when you use such a strong word, we reserve that only to God, to Allah, that this is his dominion. And mm. so we have to be very careful about taking on, there are certain qualities uh, in, in Islam, there are 99 names for God, which are also attributes, many of them. And the person is try to, tries to inculcate uh, certain qualities of God in themselves uh, without thinking that they are God, of course. So, for example, one of the names of Allah is Ar-Rahman, which means the most merciful. So if I want to be close to God, then I need to show mercy. Uh, and the Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, himself, said that those who show mercy to others will be shown mercy by God, you know, to them. And so there are certain names of majesty and greatness uh, like many are familiar, maybe the older generation, Al-Jabbar, so Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So Al-Jabbar means the overwhelming, the overpowering. So that's a name of God which we should not try to bring into our character. We should bring humility, not uh, this kind of greatness um, into, our, into our psyche. Um, so I think that the word itself has a, a, a negative connotation in Islam to be attributed to a human being. Mm. Um, and then the other part where we start is the Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, his inspiration came from by, through and by being in nature. Uh, he was a shepherd in, and he would take care of the, uh, the animals in the, in the desert. He would have time for reflection at night. He went out into the cave outside of the city of Mecca uh, where he could still see the house of God built by Abraham from, but from a mountaintop and a cave away from all of the hustle and bustle. And so I identify a lot with that, that I find a lot of peace just, you know, even if I'm just sitting in my car where there's a lot of trees, I see the birds, hear the birds. And so it is indeed a great, you know, travesty to imagine a world that doesn't, you know, have that accessible to us or to our children. Mm -hmm. So it would take away from the connection to God himself. Clearly in Islam, we don't see nature as God, but we do see nature uh, as a sacred uh, sign from God. Uh, and we see the beauty of God the same way that if you have an artist and his painting. So when a person says, and they see the painting, oh, I, I can see the artist. I mean, it's not literally, but it's saying in spirit, you know, that I'm seeing the, the touch there. And so it's a direct link back to God. I mean, nature is, and, and this is why, you know, in some traditions, obviously not in the Islamic tradition, they deify nature. Um, I can understand where that's coming from <laughs> uh, as a Muslim. Uh, and so it's, it's, this idea of being a, uh, having dominion or to subdue some of the vocabulary that, that's used sometimes and to dominate, uh, those are anathema actually in the Islamic context. Uh, but there is definitely an idea of uh, what some modern day authors are talking about, stewardship. The word that's actually used in Arabic is khalifa. A khalifa is an agent who is to represent and act in accordance with the will of the one who entrusted that agency to him. So it's not a carte blanche, you know, do whatever you want. <laughs> it's like you are answerable to God for what you do with 
the animals and the plants and the streams. And, uh, and so there's a lot of this feeling of accountability before God for the nature that we are entrusted with, as opposed to, you know, a very extreme form of understanding, you know, the idea of dominionism uh, is just, I mean, it sounds a little bit graphic, but almost just, you know, raping the earth and, and pillaging, mm-hmm. you know, this is way far, I think, from from any person of true uh, spiritual understanding to, to think that way about the earth. Mm-hmm. And the having dominion, then, it, it can't be separated from accountability. And because what comes to mind for me when you're talking about how in uh, in Islam that dominionism is 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 almost seen with a negative connotation, Christianity will hear dominion as God gave us dominion Mm. Uh, often, stereotypically. Mm. I'm not Mm. saying all the time, but Mm. very often it's uh, God gave us dominion. Mm. And it sounds like the, the negative connotation that comes with it is trying to, I, I'm hearing you saying it dismisses that and says, actually, you can't have dominion without mm. accountability. It's not a, you can have this, now do what you will. Yeah. I mean, in Islam, there's an inbuilt mechanism in a lot of what we do to be humble and appropriate for this discussion down to earth. Uh, the Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, he would, you know, sit on the ground, he would eat with his hands, he had this very simple life, um, and you know the the tree. He used to uh, lean against a tree when he would give a sermon, um, and then they built a proper pulpit for him. And then he started preaching from that pulpit, and it was one of the miracles of the Prophet Muhammad uh, that he and the people present could hear the tree weeping, missing the Prophet of God leaning against it. And so the Prophet Muhammad got down from the new pulpit, went to the tree, and actually, if you read the narration closely, you can interpret it as he like hugged the tree to comfort it. Um, now people will say, oh, Muhammad is a tree hugger. <laughs> so it's the idea of um, you know, being close to the earth, being humble, being down to the earth. There are stories where, for example, he would see a camel uh, that was being mistreated and there would be uh, uh, even an empathy uh, in the eyes uh, between them that as they look, he would feel what the camel is feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this idea when you say dominion as opposed to humility, being humble, the Prophet Muhammad himself said, I was offered by Allah, which is the name in Arabic for the one God, either to be a king prophet or to be a slave prophet. He said, I chose to be a slave prophet. Mm-hmm. So um, it's something, you know, arrogance uh, in Islam, uh, even in dealing with nature, uh, is a barrier to entering paradise itself. And the Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, said that um, even if you have an atom's weight of arrogance in your heart, you cannot enter paradise. Okay, okay. It sounds like with, with humility and with being humble, that, that can't happen outside of relationship. One has to have relationship in order to embrace those virtues. And w- if a tree is crying, weeping, then it's for that relationship. Uh, and it, one has to have a relationship with a creature. And so that that's what I want to get into a little bit more is this idea of the environment, trees, every creature within the whole of of um, from a Christian perspective, creation mm-hmm. being uh, being things that we are in relationship with. Yeah. But you have to have that perspective. So you shared this this incredible lecture with me that um, Dr. Sayed Hossein Nasser gave, and this was on January twenty sixth of two thousand nine, and um, so, so it's a powerful lecture. But at the same time, it it makes me shudder a bit because it was over a decade ago and he's talking about the urgency of this topic that we're getting into. And he's one of the foremost scholars of Islamic religious and comparative studies in the world, Dr. Nasser. And he gave this lecture in Doha outlining daily environmental struggles within an elaborate frame of spiritual Islam. And he starts by pointing out that in 1966, 
He gave a lecture in Chicago where he predicted the environmental crisis that we've been in and that we are in. And he said, there's nothing as important in the world as the environmental crisis. In fact, he said, during this one hour that I will have the pleasure of spending with you, many species will have disappeared from the face of the earth. Mm. So there's some context about this lecture. Something I want to ask you about is where Dr. Nasser says that most Muslims do not realize there is a disconnect between their daily prayers and the way they treat the environment, mm. uh, that cognitive dissonance, right? And his assertion that, as he says, the environmental crisis in the Islamic world is based on a blindness to Islamic teachings about nature. Mm. So what is that disconnect that he's talking about between Muslims' prayer life and how they treat the environment? And what do you think he means about the environmental crisis being based on Muslims' blindness to their teachings about nature? Mm -hmm. What are those teachings to which they're blind? Mm -hmm. So what I think he's speaking to, I mean, he's obviously very brilliant. I think he's speaking to the idea that people may think that Islam is simply a set of rituals and that if you uh, perform these rituals, then you are, um, to borrow a Christian term, you are saved. You know, just do the rituals, do the prayers, and you're fine. Um, or like the Christian piety of just go to church on Sunday. Yeah, everything's good for the yes. rest of the week. Repeat. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and so the 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 notion where he's saying if you're just trying to catch up to the West um, and replicating uh, its exploitation of of natural resources, uh, whether you want to look at that in a positive or a negative way, depending on who you are. Um, you know, and you just imitate them and say, well, well we're praying, we're fasting, uh, but we're going to copy everything in terms of technology and uh, quote-unquote progress, that this is not being true to the Islamic tradition, which was based on a more holistic uh, give and take between human beings and nature. Uh, for example, um, the Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, uh, he said, when you slaughter an animal, uh, make sure to treat it well. Uh, make sure the, the knife is very sharp, as painless uh, as possible. Uh, take that life knowing that you're doing so in the name of God. Uh, and this is why, you know, it's another, another discussion about, you know, kosher and halal meat. And the idea was because you're giving a sacredness to that animal that, that, that you're taking its life. And then he said, make sure not to waste anything from that animal as well, because that would be a type of uh, ingratitude uh, to God who has, uh, you know, uh, made it so that that animal uh, could be used. So, uh, or that animal would be uh, slaughtered and then the meat, you eat from it and you give others to eat from it. And you actually see that this animal is helping you in worshiping God, that you're taking from its energy or you know, it's molecules, so to speak, and making them part of your energy now. Um, and so I think, you know, that kind of teaching within Islam, you might say, okay, is it halal meat or not? Uh, am I, did am I do my five prayers or not? As opposed to saying, let's go deeper and say, why, why is there a concept of making meat sacred for it to be eaten or not? Why... Uh, when I pray, for example, that I put my face on the earth, uh, why do we say, and I think the Christians also say something similar, when we bury a person, we say, we have created you from it, we return you to it, and we bring you out of it once more. Uh, and we call the earth uh, our mother uh, as well. And is this the right way? I mean, in Islam, the mother is put on a pedestal, uh, the Prophet Muhammad was actually asked, who should I be closest to in companionship? And then the Prophet answered him, uh, your mother. He said, then who? He said, your mother. He said, then who? He said, your mother. He said, three times. He said, then who? He said, your father. So what does this tell us if we're thinking of the earth as mother and so much respect is to be given to mother? So when we enter into her womb again uh, upon death, um, we are accountable and answerable uh, 
and there's a chapter in the Quran about that, that it will speak and testify either for us or against us, depending on what we have done with her. Um, so it's uh, that going deeper into the tradition of Islam, and that if you arrive at a different point than where uh, Western uh, industrialization and technology advancement, which is bringing a lot of good, but also bringing a lot of devastation in many ways, uh, that if you arrive at a different point, that's okay. I mean, um, we don't have to all uh, conform to uh, you know one particular philosophy or theory uh, of how the world is to work. And, and unfortunately, there is this sense that um, people assume that what's coming from the West is automatically... Uh, you know, right or dominant, and this is the way to go. Um, and then, of course, you have some extreme reactions to that in other parts of the world as well. Uh, so it's it's really intricate kind of dilemma that what can we take from one another uh, as human beings, as a global citizen uh, from West or from East uh, to help our mother um, and to be respectful of our mother. Um you know, I think one of the things he said is uh, you don't see a, a kid in a village just randomly like tear a branch off of a tree and for no reason. But in the city, you would see a kid do that. And this is the idea of not feeling connected to the place where you are and feeling grounded and connected to the earth. Um, when we are praying and making a prostration, those two elements should come together um, and, and not be disconnected. And what you're saying about Mother Earth, too, again, with the uh, th that description, it, it's not only about the relationship, but I was going to to get back to what you said about being born in being born into returning to the womb of, of Mother Earth. And that's another thing that Dr. Nasser gets to that I was hoping you could uh, elaborate on for me, because he, he points out that the word environment um, at, at one of his translations into Arabic and Persian is is it mohit? Mohit, yes. And um, from the word khata, mm -hmm. which means to encompass. Yes. And so that's one of the names of God. Um, ultimately, God is the environment for a true Muslim. He says that God is the environment mm. into which we are born, mm -hmm. in which we live, in which we function, mm -hmm. and in which we die. And that struck me as very powerful, this thought of being born into God mm -hmm. um, and we die in God. So it, it, living in the environment that we share is, I, I understand what you were saying before about the environment isn't divine, it is sacred. But living in the environment that we share is is living in um I guess manifestations of God or or uh, signs of God, and 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 how do the names for God mm -hmm. in the Quran inform your relationship with the environment? If one of those names is to encompass, mm -hmm. and you were talking about the name Mother Earth, um, how do the names in the Quran for uh, for God inform your relationship with the environment? Hmm. That's an excellent question. Um... There is a verse of the Qur'an, and we talked about this name, one of the most important names already, which is Ar-Rahman, which is the all-embracing with mercy. Uh, and, and we talked about womb. So interestingly, in Arabic, the word for womb is Rahim. And Rahim uh, is connected in the three-letter roots to Ar-Rahman. So the Ra-Ha-Mim. Um, for those who are into languages, they'll they'll know if they know a little bit of Hebrew as well. They can see the connections between words just through three-letter roots. So, the idea, the Prophet Muhammad himself, there's a verse of the Quran, said, "We have sent you nothing but as a rahma, as a mercy, a compassion, softness." There's a lot of things in the word rahman for. Lil'alameen. So alameen is an Arabic word which means for everything in existence. So not just for human beings, uh, not just for the spirit world, uh, but for animals, for plants, uh, 
uh, some new age thinkers even extend it to if there is a multiverse. <laughs> mm, that's pertinent these <laughs> that, days, right? That, he, that is for all, for all, al-alameen is plural of, of world. So it's saying worlds. So um, some of the other names uh, which have to do with uh, benevolence, uh, kindness. Uh, there's another uh, powerful word, which is which is uh, Rabb, which people translate as Lord. But Rabb has to do with someone who cultivates and nurtures, uh, like a person who's taking care of a seed that goes into a sapling, and then that God is doing that with us, that he's nurturing us like a tree. Uh, and there are actually a lot of tree analogies, <laughs> but nurturing us, taking care of us, giving us the water, the sunshine, you know, the protection, uh, everything that we need to flourish, uh, that we also uh, should have that cultivating aspect with with the world, with ourselves, mm -hmm. with our children, uh, with the people around us as well. So I can see all these names for God in how I'm just looking out the window of your office here at these trees and some of those names for God um, are exhibited in how the, these trees are moving with the wind and all these different names for God can be seen in different uh, examples of uh, of the environment and what comes to mind for me from a Christian perspective is Jesus talking about as surely as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me mm. uh, from the gospel of Matthew. And there's in, there's a, there's this notion of, of uh, all of creation having come through Jesus as well mm. through one of the creation stories. And just quick side note, there's not just one creation story in the Bible. There's, there's a handful of creation stories in the Bible, one of which is from the Gospel of John, where it begins with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. Everything came into being through Him, that being the Logos, Christ, Jesus. And so looking around at the environment, mm -hmm. looking around at creation, we see, uh, we see Christ Himself, mm -hmm. And therefore, how we treat the environment is getting back to that idea of as surely as you did it to what you see, mm -hmm. you do it to me. And I, I hear a similarity there in the different names for God being revealed in how the environment carries itself and how the environment expresses itself, how it lives, if we would only see it that way. But mm -hmm. we have to see it that way. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, one of the names uh, of God is the most beautiful. And so when we see beauty, uh, it should uh, draw us closer to the wonder for the beauty of God himself. And so the beauty in nature and the patterns and uh, the, the colors and, as you mentioned, just the, the wind... Uh, blowing through some leaves or, and a leaf falling and so on. I mean, it's really, it can take a person to another mystical uh, mystical <laughs> plane, uh, if you will. Uh, one of the things I wanted to feed off of on your, on your comment, um, how we treat nature, and especially, you know, I think people can relate to is, is animals. How we treat animals really says a lot about our inner spirituality or yes, inner yes. world and our inner self. Uh, there's a tradition some of your audience may know. Um, it sounds a little severe, but I mean, it's because it's something so important. Uh, the Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, said there was a woman, she went to hellfire because of a cat. Um, and they said uh, about her, she would pray, uh, fast, uh, do the rituals of the religion, uh, but she had a cat that she caged. She wouldn't feed the cat. Uh, she wouldn't allow the cat to go f find food for itself. So that cruelty in her heart, uh, it was the true face, not the prayer and the fasting and so on. And so there's a saying of the Prophet Muhammad that God doesn't look at the externalities. He looks at your heart and your deeds. And so because of that, she went to the hellfire because of her cruelty to the cat was the true 
what and then the flip side because we have to be optimistic it said there is a um a woman again in classical societies uh you know they say oh uh, she was a, a prostitute so they would see her okay she's uh committing so many sins she's going against uh you know, chastity and, and so on. They said that she went to paradise because of a dog. And they said, what's her story? So the Prophet Muhammad, to teach them that lesson, he said that she was walking through the desert uh, and she became very thirsty and came to a well. And she was about to, uh, you know, get some water from that well for herself to drink. But she found a dog panting, unable to get water from the well. So she... I took her slipper, went down into the well, uh, filled it with water, filled her slipper with water, and then held her slipper in her mouth, climbed up the well with the, <laughs> the slipper in her mouth, and gave the dog to drink even before she drank. So it said, Allah so much appreciated what she had done, because that's her true self coming out, mm -hmm. that he forgave all of her sins and entered her into paradise. And so our relationality, you know, that you mentioned, this relationality to nature really says a lot about ourselves, about either our beauty or our ugliness, because we have both potentialities as human beings. Uh, we have a potentiality to corruption. We also have a potentiality uh, to uh, righteousness as well. And, and both of them exist. And within the spiritual dimension of Islam, there's a, a struggle in the heart that is taking place uh, between both of those uh, possibilities. And sometimes they're in the same person. He could be a monster or be a saint, <laughs> but we want the saint to come out and, and, and how they treat nature and how they are with nature does say a lot about that person. You know? um, and, and I had a, a person come to my house once and he was doing some work and he said, you know, I can really read a person, you know, when I see how they, uh, you know, deal with a dog or how they. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a yeah. there's a playful prayer of uh, God, please help me be the person my dog thinks that I am. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> another thing that you're talking about with how we treat nature and the environment says so much about ourselves. It makes me think of the the command of loving one another as we love ourselves mm. and you know I, I i very often as a pastor will come back to that in pastoral counseling to say if the extent to which you love yourself is the extent to which you will extend that love to others very often so please don't lose sight of yourself do practice self-love and don't think that it is selfishness or something pejorative. It, it's a good thing. And so I'm, I'm just thinking about if we have an apathetic view of ourselves, then that same apathy will be shown to the cat, yeah. for example. Yeah. Um, I, and I also learned just, I didn't want to lose this, that the Prophet Muhammad liked, uh, loved cats. Yes, yes. He, he, this is one of the Maybe that's another reason why that story comes out so prominently. Uh, and, you know, I think, there's a saying in the or part of a verse of the Quran where it says they forgot about God and so God made them forget about themselves. Mm. Um, and if the vehicle or one of the main vehicles to remembering God is going out into the wilderness and experiencing nature, um, you know, some authors said there's, and I think he was Sayyid Hussein Nasr himself, where you don't find atheistic uh, civilizations or atheistic tendencies in places where it's agrarian and uh, in nature and wilderness, that atheism developed in the cities where it's like... <laughs> yeah, he talks you know, about that. Yeah, where it's yeah. just like uh, concrete and buildings i mean no offense to the architects you know there's some beautiful downtowns but um you know i think the idea here of uh if if we injure nature we injure ourselves i mean we are nature nature is us uh yes there is a mystical dimension 
that we believe in as human beings or as Muslims that human beings have, which is the ruh, which is the spirit. Uh, but again, we have the same DNA, uh, not just of fellow human beings, but the same molecules <laughs> that are making up uh, even the plants themselves and even bacteria themselves. So um, a very powerful feeling to have if a person gets to that point in their mind and in their spirit is to feel communion, not just with your fellow human being, but even with the blades of grass, with the, you know, the, the molecules in the air and this oneness with everything. Um, again, we see God as close, but it's, it's, it's really complicated when you start talking about mystical areas uh, of the religion of Islam because words can lead to confusion sometimes. Um, but I think what I would advise myself and, and, and those listening is, you know, go out into nature, maybe it's been a while, and go to a stream, go to a lake, you know, it's called Ladybird Lake now here in Austin, you know, I used to, <laughs> we used to be called Lake Austin. Um, and just watch the ripples, you know, and and just enjoy that whole feeling that you're getting of closeness to God, um, you know, as opposed to people think, oh, if you're a person studying science, then automatically it takes you away from God, uh, and that you maybe you will develop an atheistic philosophy. But for me, you know, when I would sit in UT and watch you know, a video about developmental biology and, and see the developing fetus and see how it goes from one cell to two cells and then go and go and keep on going. I mean, it blew me away. And, you know, it's, it sounds kind of weird, but tears would come into my eyes sometimes in organic chemistry class, you know? So, mm -hmm. so I think that's what nature does is it connects us to God and, and we don't want to lose that. That's how you see. So, so let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about anthropocentrism, mm -hmm. this idea of uh, taking uh, that, that, that everything doesn't revolve around humankind, that we're a part of that and that we would be, uh, as you just said, moved to tears at the overwhelming beauty of relationship. So Nasser talks about how in Islam, there's a creative process carried out by this absolute being who is pure intelligence, pure love, pure care, all of the names that we associate with God. And this means that every creature has a relationship with God mm -hmm. independent of us, he says, us being humankind. So every creature has its own rights. Every creature has its, mm. it has its due, he says. Every creature has what he says is, is every creature has its face turned toward God independent of us. Mm. So what is this spiritual mandate about every creature having its own rights independent of humankind teach Muslims about how they are supposed to relate to the environment and how they're supposed to treat it. Mm. Um, I mean, you, you, we, we've kind of been talking about this a good deal to this point, but um, the Quran says that God placed nature where it is for us to use it, but for us to use it wisely in such a way as not to destroy it. Mm. And I think that Nasser talks about that, but it seems to go deeper than that when we talk about this idea of every creature within nature existing independent of us yes yes so yeah i mean it's uh it's not all about us it's all about god in the end um i mean yes there is the centrality of experience that we experience through ourselves but i think the idea here that's that's really uh, profound um, is that without us God would still be but without him we would not be and so uh, when we talk about nature I mean there was before human beings were created <laughs> there are other creatures uh, including we believe you know celestial beings angels and uh, beings created out of fire which are jinn uh, which jinn, incidentally, uh, have a capacity for moral choice like human beings. This is what makes the two uh, related to one another. 
the humans created from clay and water, the jinn created from fire. So to know that these are already worlds around us that are existing even before our existence. Um, and we are kind of like the new kid on the block. <laughs> so why do we come with such arrogance uh, into this world um, and, and with these words like dominate and subdue and so on? I think the other thing with, with regards to, to nature and that idea um, is that uh, the fact that they are answerable as human beings, as jinn to God, but you have all of this other creation which is just living according to God's plan uh, without resistance. Uh, the sun never says, I'm not going to rise today or I'm not going to set today. But it's actually the human being uh, that yes, it is something bizarre about the human being. He can be, you know, uh, worse than an animal, or better than an angel. I mean, so it's, it's, and that's what the Quran talks about as, um, I mean, the distinguishing factor about the human being is he has to have what's called the amana, which is the trust, um, and the heavens and the earth and everything and the mountains said we have nothing to do, we don't want to have anything to do with this trust from God upon us. But the human being carried that trust. <laughs> uh, and unfortunately, many human beings don't even realize that they have this trust upon them and this expectation from God upon them. Um, and uh, they can do great evil and great harm uh, because of the lack of feeling of accountability to the one who has entrusted us, uh, that is God himself. I wanted to ask you about Islamic law, Sharia law, and the priorities that are placed on it when, when looking at the environment. So what we prioritize in our teachings is is yet another reflection of, of what's inside, like we've been talking about. So, according to Sharia law, as I understand it, it is forbidden to kill trees even during war. Yes. It's, and, and uh, Dr. Nasser actually talked about that, where killing trees during war is along the same lines as being forbidden, as in don't harm women and children. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, according to Sharia law, you must keep water pure. Mm. It's against Islamic law to pollute running water, which my mind, of course, went immediately to Flint, Michigan, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, it's against Islamic law to own water as a source for a whole society. So there's obvious points in here about commodifying land and water being uh, against, mm. as, as I hear that, against mm. Islamic law. Mm. And... Um, this I wanted to ask you about this because what came to mind for me in thinking about Sharia law and just those few examples that I shared yeah. is the idea of, of, of cherry picking. Christians mm-hmm. often call it when it comes mm-hmm. to our holy texts and looking at the Bible and cherry picking the pieces of it that work for us and ignoring the ones that don't or worse yet, weaponizing, manipulating mm-hmm the texts that work for us against Mm. others or to help us in ways that lord ourselves over others i'm going i'm saying too much but i wanted to give you an example of what i'm getting at uh when it comes to leviticus the the holiness codes and for example it's widely known about leviticus 1822 where Christians will will say, well, that some Christians will say, well, that is proof, quote unquote, that homosexuality is wrong because it talks about a man should not lie with a man. And I would argue that that's not what it's talking about, but that's beside the point. Leviticus 19.33 talks about you shall treat the foreigner in your land, the alien in your land as one of your own mm. and take care of them. And why is one given attention to the detriment of the other? And then there's also, of course, other uh, scriptures in the same 
in the same book about don't eat shellfish, don't mix fabrics, etc. Mm. So some are prioritized, some are not. And I'm curious if the same kind of ethic or lack thereof is applied to Sharia law. Um, do Muslims actually abide by mm. those laws um, with equity? Mm. Just curious about that. Yeah, that's a really deep question um, and uh, a longer conversation, no doubt. Um, there is an idea of coming to revelation uh, neutrally and not trying to read our opinions into the text. Um, the example that's given is have the Quran in front of you, leading you, uh, not behind you, <laughs> uh, that you're leading it. <laughs> so we, we definitely have to be careful. I mean, the scholars, they did break down the priorities of the Sharia or the divine code or divine law. Say, what is, what is the end point of it all? As opposed to individual rules and regulations. Said number one is to protect uh, religion itself so that there is value in religion, even though it, people see a lot of negative aspects about organized religion and so on. But there is a deep value in religion um, to protect life um, and, and not just human life, but all life uh, to uh, protect even, you know, it's there, it's in the principles to protect also property, um, you know, as well, that there is a level of sacredness if something belongs to one person that another person doesn't uh, forcefully take it from them. But we should not be attached to that which we have. We should be giving it freely and, and willingly. Uh, but then also uh, safeguarding uh, honor uh, as well as the, the next generation as well. So stepping back and trying to see how do these laws fit in uh, with the purpose and the reasoning behind it. Um, Muslims are at various levels of practice and understanding. Uh, I think the average Muslim, uh, including myself, would say, I'm not really following everything the way that it needs to be followed and to the level it needs to be followed. But I do value it that if it is to be implemented, that this would be the right way to live. You know, I'm not there yet, but I, that's how I think many Muslims, including myself, would see that, okay, I'm not there yet, but I need to work to get to that, to that level. And um, we are not uh, pure, but we should be purifying. So we're purifying ourselves as much as we can uh, to reach uh, as much purity as we can. Uh, but at the same time, there's a saying of the Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, that he said that if human beings committed no sins uh, and were, were sinless and so pure, he said he would replace them and create ones who would commit sins so that he can forgive them. <laughs> because one of the names, for, it to, for that name to be relevant, one of his names is the most forgiving. So if they're not committing, so what relevance is forgiveness then? Um, you know, so I think, yes, Muslims are different levels. Uh, people can read the text uh, and interpret it to suit their particular agenda. Uh, but an honest and true uh, believer comes neutrally to the text and says, let me look at all of the revelation on this particular topic, look at all the context, um, even pray on it and seek the guidance from God. Um, and then act on that, even if it goes against something that they were inclined to before that whole exercise. And it sounds to me like you're, what, what, what I would say is it, it's about how you read. So when it comes to the examples that I just shared about, you shall not, I'm using Judeo-Christian language just then with you shall not, <laughs> but, but you, you don't harm a tree, you don't pollute the water, you don't own water um and and as you were saying you don't put yourself before the quran 
you let it lead you. And so rather than trying to memorize the law and, and, and have it be, um, something that you do correctly or better than somebody else, you ask first the question, um, this is what I'm hearing in some of Mm -hmm. what you're saying. Mm -hmm. You ask first the question, uh, well, what will happen to the tree if I don't do right by it? Mm. What will happen to the water if I, if I were to allow for it to be polluted mm. or if I did own it? So it's, it's not about how I should behave ethically for my own betterment. It's mm. about how I can live in, in right relationship with the pieces of the environment and the whole of, again, as I would call it from a Christian perspective, the whole of creation that, that, that are about reconciliation and belonging and, um, right. Yeah. Right relationship. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I think, um, Islam means, means submission. It also means attaining peace through submission. So we are included in that <laughs> as human beings. So we submit along with the trees, the birds, uh, the animals, the whole universe, the galaxies. They are in submission. They are Muslim, meaning they're, you might say, what do you mean they're Muslim? Meaning that they are in submission. We also join them in submission to God. Mm. And so uh, I think it's important not to lose sight of that. And, <laughs> you know, understand, yes, we are unique because we can choose to obey or disobey the divine pattern or to align with the divine pattern or not. But the risk that we're taking is if we don't align with the divine pattern, we're going against all of creation uh, and we're risking that all of creation could be cursing us instead of thanking God for us. (laughs) If we say this human being, uh, you know, look what it's, you know, he's straying straying so far away from the divine purpose and, (laughs) and plan. Uh, and but that's why God is also forgiving. He gives us a chance uh, to repair, uh, to uh, learn, learn better. And I think we are getting there as human beings uh, when it comes to the environment, especially the next generation. Uh, you know, I think that that's something promising there. Uh, it will take a lot of effort, uh, a lot of work. Uh, and also, as you mentioned, just changing the mindset of how we see the world how we see ourselves in the world um and and especially with a religion like islam where you have the second largest religion in the world um you know without trying to make a debate about it but uh it's a religion that's taken very seriously by its um you know practitioners how much they're practicing or not you know maybe varying but they take it very seriously that if they get a message that is genuinely from within the tradition of Islam, uh, that they need to be environmentally conscious, uh, that they need to uh, have preservation of natural resources, they will see, oh, this is being a good Muslim uh, is also uh, conserving and uh, preserving uh, nature and so on. Okay. So shifting to where we go from here then, Mm then the hope for the future is a change in perspective, um, a metanoia, mm. a change of, of how we see, mm. and that we teach our children that same kind of, uh, cha- that, that same kind of perspective, that same different way of seeing things. So Dr. Nasser says that for the Muslim, no revival can come without the revival of the Islamic view of the environment. And so uh, what is the ideal view of the environment uh, for Muslims? I, I, I guess I could ask it that way. Or, or, or what is Muslims' view of dominion, dominionism, of having dominion over the earth? And, how, and, and, and does that view need to change? I think it's more of uh, responsibility and fellowship. I know fellowship is a Christian term, but fellowship with nature. I mean... <laughs> Uh, it's it's give and take, you know, and uh, this is the true way of, of being at peace um, and living at peace is you are. Uh, I know when we talk about brotherhood and, and, 
and that kind of thing. We're thinking about human beings, but feeling a closeness uh, to the environment that we are in, feeling identification with the environment uh, that we are in, um, whether it is uh, a tree or whether it is uh, a mountain. Um, I mean, the Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, there's a mountain outside of his city in Medina. He said, this is a mountain that we love and that loves us. <laughs> and so that's, I think, a very Islamic feeling about nature. Is there's a, there's a give and take and there's real depth of emotion. He's not just, he's saying, we love this mountain and this mountain loves us. Um, and so I think that that would be a very different world if we had that mindset uh, when it comes to you know, resources and the environment and uh, the growing list of endangered species. And, you know, these are our brothers uh, in a different level. I know language is sometimes confusing, but, uh, you know, these are, these are also, we are responsible for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, but language is everything. Looking at, um, <laughs> looking at plankton yeah. as, as my neighbor, as yeah. a Christian would say, Yeah. instead of just, uh, something that I can't see and so it doesn't matter or yeah 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 okay well I wanted to wrap up by uh, getting personal for just a second mm -hmm. and ask you uh, you know as a Muslim as, as an imam yeah has the way that you see the environment and how you relate to the environment changed mm -hmm. over time and I know that's kind of an abstract question. So are there any particular behaviors mm. that you and, and your family do that reflect that view that, it, yeah. that has perhaps changed? Yeah, I think early on, I mean, some of my uh, strongest spiritual experiences uh, had to do with just looking at the stars. I'm, I'm sure many of the listeners have similar kind of feeling. Just, you know, all night just looking at the stars and then you know you you get this really deep feeling that is beyond expression with words uh, of closeness and nearness uh, to God but also oneness with creation that you that you are you know been observing um, I think one thing that has changed the idea of science being the end all and be all. I, I have a chemical engineering degree <laughs> from the University of Texas here. Um, and so seeing, you know, learning the laws of nature to take advantage of nature uh, as opposed to uh, using, using it responsibly and also giving it its due right as well. Uh, I think that for me personally, um, I still love science and it's mind blowing some of what we've discovered, but not seeing that as the end, uh, ideal or the end, um, absolute kind of axiomatic good that, okay, as long as, uh, we are progressing in the scientific arena, this means we're on the right path, you know, not necessarily. I mean, it's, uh, I'm not against scientific progress by any means, but I think just embracing it blindly wherever it takes us. Uh, unfortunately, we've seen how science, you know, wiped out a uh, whole city, you know, um, in, in the blink of an eye. So we have to be very careful. So I think that's something that has changed within me philosophically is that having a love for science doesn't mean a blind following or submission to science, because after all, I have to submit to God, to Allah, not to uh, something other than that. And so, um, you know, in terms of just practical day-to-day -day, uh, activities and so on, I always teach my children, uh, my, my two daughters, you know, don't disturb the animals, don't disturb the plants, you know, leave them be, you know, they're not doing anything to you, don't, don't do anything to them. Um, and I think that that's, that's a key thing to just keep on letting people feel that they have rights just like you have rights. And um, they are umam, they are nations the way that human beings are nations. And so, you know, giving that due respect uh, that is there. Thank you. 
Imam Islam Masad talking with us about dominionism and our relationship to the environment. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. All right. I enjoyed it.